It's All Relative is back yet again with tales of families and crime. This podcast is a true crime podcast in which I try to get at the why behind whatever the what is that occurs. I do not just accept the popular view and I do not pull punches. If you are worried that any of that might bother you, it probably will. So turn back now. If you continue to listen, do so at your own risk and... You are my kind of people. Also, some housekeeping. It's All Relative is coming to YouTube. Do not get excited. It is just the logo for a visual and the pod audio. Trust me, you do not need to see what I look like. Also, there is now a Patreon. It is linked in the show notes. If you'd like to donate to the cause of continuing this podcast, it is greatly appreciated. I love doing this show and welcome any help to keep it going. Even if it will only keep me in coffee and magic spoon, I am thrilled. It is currently a pay-what-you-will style until I have enough gumption to offer bonuses for pay levels. Frankly, there is much I would love to do, but as I tell my two T's, there is only one of me and many of you. Now, to kick off the episode, here's Rosemary Clooney, and I'll see you on the other side. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you Christmas tree. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you marriage ring and the pomegranate wine. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you peach and pear and I love your hair. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you a style. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you everything, everything, everything. Come on to my house. Every decision we make now is made with all the knowledge we have gleaned and circumstances we have undergone up to that point, the point of the decision. A decision made today may have been made differently had the opportunity come sooner or later. Sometimes we are happy with our decisions and sometimes we rue the moment we made them. Today's story, that of Sally Horner, is filled with decisions which most of the actors wish had been made differently. Primary source for this story is a book by Sarah Weinman called The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner and the Novel That Scandalized the World. From my perspective, I don't give a monkeys about Nabokov's book, Lolita, and any connection it may have had to the story of Sally Horner. This is about Sally. At the moment, however, the best way to get at Sally's story is from Weinman's book. She has done her due diligence in researching that story. So, to begin. Florence Horner was born in Trenton, New Jersey on April 18, 1937. Her nickname was Sally but no one remembered where that name came from or why it was given to her. Sally's mother, Ella Goff, had a bit of a checkered past for the early 20th century. At age 19, Ella gave birth to Susan. Susan's father was a man at least 10 years older than Ella, and according to the interviews Weinman had with the still-living members of Sally's family, this man was also married. Susan's father was not involved in her life. The 1930 census recorded Ella's last name as Albara and listed that she was married. 
but Weinman could find no marriage certificate for a marriage between Ella and a Mr. Albara. This may mean Ella was hiding her identity for some reason, but it may also mean that she was Albara's common love spouse and just using his last name. This is definitely what she did when she met and moved in with a widower known as Russell Horner. Ella and Russell lived in Roebling with Susan and Russell's son, also named Russell. Russell, the son, got married two months before Sally's birth and he dropped out of sight. Also, no one says anything about this, but Roebling, where they lived, is actually known as Florence Roebling, and Florence is Sally's given name. Not important as far as I can tell, but interesting trivia all the same. Unfortunately, Russell drank, and he beat Ella and Susan, and it is unknown if he also abused Sally. But Ella finally had enough of his bullshit and moved herself and her girls about 38 miles away to Camden. Russell became transient, moving around and looking for work. He didn't really find any. Steering us back to Sally's tale, when Sally was almost six, Russell hanged himself in his parents' barn. Weinman says, quote, According to the state police, he had been despondent over ill health for some time. End quote. As an aside, I wanted to know more about this ill health, so I tried to find Weinman's source for this statement. A Google search for those words, he had been despondent over ill health for some time, brings up several articles in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s with those exact words, not even a variation. Those exact words. This is either code for something or a sign of very lazy reporting. Anyway, Weinman states that once Russell was gone, Ella had no financial support and was forced to go to work. This, however, makes little sense. There is no mention of how she is getting her money prior to Russell's death, but it is reported that Russell loses his job as a crane operator due to his drinking, and he begins to move around looking for work. This search was made more difficult when he lost his driver's license. So Ella is not getting any income from him by the time Sally is three. Russell doesn't commit suicide until Sally is six. This means that Ella had to have some kind of a job for the three years prior to his death, not just after he died. Regardless, what is known is that Ella started working as a seamstress. While she was able to get some help from her parents up to Russell's death, both her parents passed away by that point, and she was forced to manage completely on her own. Well, sort of. Susan was 16 at that point, and she left school to work in a factory to help the family income. This only lasted a few years because she married in February of 1945 and set up her own house with her new husband, Al. What comes to the fore in Wyman's book is that Sally's life, up to 1948, was lonely and she had been kept rather naive. Ella had gone in and out of romantic relationships fairly often, suggesting that men were seen, to Sally, as transient. Neither Ella nor Susan spoke about the past with Sally. Although Sally did have a memory of her father, it was fleeting. Susan had begun her departure from the home with her shift from school to the factory and completed it with her marriage. And look, I do think that Ella could have handled parenting better, but it was fairly common not to tell the children about adult things in the early 20th century. Hell, in certain circles, it still happens today. Yes, I'm judging Ella, but I'm not judging her harshly. For the time and the place, it was the natural way to do things. The result for Sally was that, 
by 1948, 10-year-old naive and lonely Sally really, really wanted to be friends with the popular girls at school. To do that, the girls had dared her to shoplift a notebook from the Woolworths. Sally, of course, had never stolen a thing. Considering the time period, the girls probably called her a goody-two-shoes. She was an honor student, president of the Junior Red Cross Club, and a hospital volunteer. Weinman doesn't say it, but this clique of girls were certainly the mean girls. Sally went into the Woolers, picked up the notebook, and put it in her bag, and then stared straight ahead as she made for the door, but she was stopped by a hand grabbing her arm. Quote, Sally looked up. A slender, hawk-faced man loomed above her, iron-gray hair underneath a wide-brimmed fedora, eyes shifting between blue and gray. A scar sliced his cheek by the right side of his nose, while his shirt collar shrouded another mark on his throat. The hand gripping Sally's arm bore the traces of an even older half-moon stamp forged by fire. Any adult would have sized him up as middle age, but to ten-year-old Sally, he looked positively ancient. I'm an FBI agent, said the man to Sally, and you are under arrest. Sally did what many young girls would have done in a similar situation. She cried. She cowered. She felt immediately ashamed. The man's low voice and steely gaze froze her in place. He pointed across the way to City Hall, the tallest building in Camden. That's where girls like her would be dealt with, he said. Sally didn't understand his meaning at first. Then he explained. To punish her for stealing, she would be sent to the reformatory. Sally didn't know that much about reform school, but what she knew was not good. She kept crying. Then his stern manner brightened. It was a lucky break for a little girl like her, he said, that he was the one who caught her and not some other FBI agent. If she agreed to report to him from time to time, he would let her go, spare her the worst, show some mercy. Sally stopped crying. He was going to let her go. She wouldn't have to call her mother from jail, her poor, overworked mother. Ella, still struggling with the consequences of the suicide of her alcoholic husband, Sally's father, five years earlier, still tethered to her seamstress job, which meant that Sally, too often, went home to an empty house after school. But she couldn't think about that, not when she was about to escape real punishment. Any desire she felt about joining the girls' club fell away. Overcome by relief, she wouldn't face a much larger feel. End quote. Three months passed. Sally walked home from school and was often accompanied by her teacher because they both lived in the same direction. This day, in June, Sally was walking home by herself, and she was intercepted by the man who had caught her shopping at Woolworths. The FBI agent told her that she had to go with him to Atlantic City. Sally was horrified that her mother would find out about the notebook theft, so the agent told her to tell her mother that she was invited to go on holiday with her friend's family. Agent Warner, which is what the FBI man was calling himself, would call Ella, confirming the invitation and setting her mother's worries at ease. I'm pretty sure I actually heard some of you gasping at the absurdity of this tale. An FBI agent interested in the theft of a notebook? An FBI agent arresting an 11-year-old and taking her to Atlantic City? Of all places. What the fuck? But Sally fell for this ruse. I am appalled at how naive this poor child was. I am more appalled that this FBI agent was walking around free and able to do this cockamamie shit. 
but we'll get to him in a bit. Ella was worried about this holiday, but she also felt that her daughter was probably not going to have another opportunity to get a vacation. Ella certainly couldn't afford it, and she knew that Sally loved to go to new places. On the telephone, Mr. Warner assured Ella that Sally would be no problem. So, quote, on June 14, 1948, Ella took Sally to the Camden bus depot. She kissed her daughter goodbye and watched her climb aboard an express bus to Atlantic City. She spied the outlines of a middle-aged man, the one she took to be Warner, next to Sally. But he did not come out to greet her. Ella also did not see anyone else with the man, neither wife nor children. Still, she tamped down her suspicions. She wanted so badly for her daughter to enjoy herself. And it seemed, from the first few letters Sally sent her from Atlantic City, that the girl was having a good time. End quote. Ella, Ella, Ella. God, that is so wrong. Now, in her defense, people did not really think about pedophiles and child sexual abuse in 1948. Hell, Kemp's battered child syndrome wasn't published until 1962. And CAPTA wasn't signed into law until 1964. And if you don't know what those are, look those up. It's pretty easy to goog. So Ella had no real reason, based on it being 1948, to listen to her suspicions. Women who had feelings at this time were apt to be labeled hysterical. Shit, even today they can be hard to get the police to file a missing persons report. They are liable to tell you the child has just run away and that kid will come back. Hashtag everything is shit, people. Ella should have said no, but I understand why she didn't. And any worries she continued to have were assuaged by Sally's letters and phone calls. Yes, that's right. Sally got to keep in contact with her mother, and she reported that she was having a good time. In addition, the trip was only supposed to last a week. At the end of the week, Sally asked to stay another week, because she wanted to see the ice follies. About week three, Sally stopped contact. Ella's letters were returned with Return to Sender stamped on them. And still, Ella did not call the cavalry. She did not start looking for her daughter. She did not call the police. She didn't talk to the press. Neither did Susan or her husband, Al. Granted, Susan was in the final month of her pregnancy, so her mind was not exactly focused on her missing sister. On July 31st, 1948, one month and one half after Sally got on that bus and was supposed to be gone for a week, Ella received a letter from Sally saying that she and Mr. Warner were leaving Atlantic City for Baltimore. Quote, Though she promised to return home to Camden by the end of the week, she added, I don't want to write anymore. At last, something woke up inside Ella's mind. I don't think my little girl has stayed with that man all this time of her own accord. Ella finally understood the horrible truth. She called the police. End quote. So, Ella's not the brightest bulb in the pack, I know. By August 4th, the police arrived at the rooming house where the letter had come from in Atlantic City. The landlady told them that Mr. Warner was staying with his daughter. One daughter, no wife, just Sally. Warner worked at a gas station, but there he was known as Frank Robinson. He had not shown up for his shift. His latest paycheck was still waiting to be collected. And at the rooming house, all the clothing written but unsent postcards to Ella, their suitcases and Frank's hat remained in the room. Frank had left with Sally in a hurry, leaving no trace as to where they had gone. 
The worst part for both Ella, not to mention Sally, is that just who Frank Warner slash Robinson really was, was now known. Six months before he had absconded with Sally, he had come out of prison where he had done time for the statutory rape of five girls between the ages of 12 and 15. This man, better known as Frank LaSalle, is whomever he claimed to be. He had more aliases than Jennifer Gardner, but he definitely didn't look as good in a wig. He was born, probably, just before the turn of the last century, aka before 1900. His parents were probably named Frank and Nora, since their first names seldom changed, but their last names ranged from Patterson, LaPlante, LaSalle, Johnson. He was probably from the Midwest. He traveled so much, however, I wonder if he changed his most notable alias after Jules Verne's character in Around the World in 80 Days, Phileas Fogg. Known as Frank Fogg, he had a wife and a son during the Depression. However, this is so incongruous of the man that I'm wondering if this was his attempt at some sort of a cover. In 1937, he claimed that his wife took off with the son and ran off with a mechanic. From what I know of this guy, she just may have done that to get away from him. It is equally likely that he was sick of living the lie and just left them himself. A week after they, meaning his wife and son, left, he had a new wife, 18-year-old Dorothy Dare. Wife is definitely in inverted commas because he was supposedly still married to the wife that had allegedly left with his kid. Dorothy's father hated Frank and got the police to issue a warrant for him based on kidnapping and statutory rape. Dorothy's father told police she was 15, but they found out the truth when they caught up to the couple. She was, unfortunately, a legal adult. The case got to the judge, but the judge threw it out. Slightly askew of his normal ugly child-abusing crimes, a hit-and-run car crash occurred just after the warrant went out to find Frank for his dealings with Dorothy. The driver that fled this crash sounded a lot like Frank, and the car involved sounded a lot like Frank's car. He was run in yet again, and despite his denials, the judge sentenced him to a $50 fine and 15 days in jail. In addition, he was given an extra 30 days in jail for failing to pay a previous fine of $200 for giving false information. He got more time for not paying a court fine than he did for the actual crime of hitting somebody and leaving the accident. When Frank was again free to roam the streets, he and Dorothy resumed cohabitating and even produced a daughter in 1939. In 1940, the police arrested him again, this time on the bigamy charges. He was again acquitted. In 1942, Dorothy, nay Dare, sued Frank for desertion and non-payment of child support. Quoting from Weinman's book, Dare family lore had it that Dorothy discovered her husband in a car with another woman and grew so enraged she hit the other woman over the head with her shoe. What was passed down as a dark but amusing family story turned out to hide a more sinister truth. What Dorothy Dare discovered about her husband first came to light in the wee hours of March 10, 1942. Three Camden police officers walked into a restaurant and spotted a girl sitting alone in a booth. Women sitting by themselves in public at three in the morning still stand out. 
Imagine what cops thought in the early 1940s when they stumbled across a 12-year-old girl all on her own so late in the night. When the cops asked the girl what she was up to, being out alone at such an hour, she evaded their questioning. So the policeman took her back to the headquarters where the city detective would ask the questions. She admitted she had been out that night because she had a date with a man about 40 years old. The man's name, she said, was Frank LaSalle. He had given her a card with the phone number and address of the Philadelphia auto body shop where he worked. In his report, the city detective wrote that the girl said LaSalle had forced her into intimacies. The girl almost certainly used plainer language. She also told Wilkie that LaSalle made her introduce him to four of her friends by threatening to tell her mother what she had done with him. When police brought the other girls in to be questioned, Wilkie, that detective, reported each of them also told of how they had been raped by LaSalle, end quote. Unfortunately, Frank had somehow learned that the police were after him and had just not gone into work. The police had an outdated address for Frank and it looked like he had fled. But a tip came in where Frank, Dorothy, and a daughter were living and sat on it until Frank came home. It was obvious he had spotted them, though, because when the cops came up the drive to arrest him, Frank went out the back door and into the ether for a year. When Frank was finally apprehended, he was given a two and a half year sentence. Two and a half years for each rape, that's five, but served concurrently, so still only two and a half years. Oh, and he was paroled after 18 months. I will give you all a moment to scream. And if that wasn't enough, I want to address Dorothy's divorce petition, which she started pretty quickly after he was arrested. I have heard a few people comment, mostly negatively, about the contents of that petition. Namely, that Dorothy named all five girls in her petition as having committed adultery with her husband. In the 1940s, divorce was not an easy task. I'm not saying that divorces are necessarily ever easy, but many states in the U.S. are no-fault states, meaning that you do not need to prove any particular misdeed to apply for, let alone get, a divorce. But this didn't even begin to be possible until the 1960s. In the 1940s, you still had to prove that your spouse had committed some offense against you to even apply for a divorce. Prejudice of a woman's place in the home often meant that it was a much, much harder deal for a woman to prove that fault than it was for a man. And this had to be a fault against her position as a wife, not just something he did that was shitty. All this is to say that in order for Dorothy to petition, aka beg, for a divorce from Frank the Creep, she had to provide proof that he had committed adultery. If she petitioned for divorce on the grounds that he preyed on little girls, there was every chance that her divorce petition would not be granted because framing the request in that way was not an offense against her as a wife. It was an offense against the girls. All this absolutely disgusting because it is. But I just want to be clear that it is not Dorothy who's being disgusting in her divorce petition calling the rape victims adulteresses. It is the system being disgusting and making her only option to get away from this shit of a man is to play the stupid word game. Moving on. So Frank is out of prison and things are progressing about the same manner as they always had. He's brought up on an assault charge, which is dropped. He tries to pass a forged check and this gets him convicted. 
He gets 18 months to five years for these charges. Yep, you heard me. He got more time for the forged check, and yet the assault charge was dropped. He heads back to prison. At least he has to finish out the rape sentence, in addition to that for the check, because this new crime, the forged check, was done while he was on parole. This puts him back on the streets in January of 1948, staying at the YMCA, right across the street from Sally Horner's favorite Woolworths. And now, we're all up to date. Frank and Sally left Atlantic City essentially with nothing. I can only presume that Frank somehow had a stash of money somewhere to dig up, because there is no other way they could have made it. The two boarded a greyhound in Philadelphia, and according to Sally herself, were accompanied by a young woman Frank called Mrs. Robinson, and told Sally she was his assistant. When they made it to Baltimore, Mrs. Robinson vanished. And now we get to more of the weird psychology of this case. Remember, Frank had originally convinced Sally was an FBI agent who was taking her in for stealing a notebook. When and how this ruse ended is not exactly clear, but to stay at the rooming house in Atlantic City, Frank had been passing Sally off as his daughter. In Baltimore, this deception continued. Sally was even enrolled in school at a Catholic institution. For eight months, Sally went by the name Madeline LaPlante. When they were in Atlantic City, Frank had let Sally call and write home. On the one hand, it is a way of allaying her family's fears and keeping them from calling the police. On the other hand, if they had no idea where to find Sally, calling the police wouldn't really matter. So I'm not sure how he figured he could trust her not to alert her family to the reality of her kidnapping, but she didn't. In the end, his allowing Sally to keep in touch with her family resulted in them having to flee with only the clothes on their backs. Weinman says, quote, Sally Horner did not have the chance to tell her story to the world, unlike the women and girls of later generations. She also didn't have the choice of keeping her account wholly private. What remains of her time on the road with Frank LaSalle are bits and pieces cobbled together from court documents and corroborated by city records. Absence is as telling as substance. Inference will have to stand in for confidence. Imagination will have to fill in the rest. End quote. To this, I will say that there is another book out there about Sally, her mother, sister, brother-in-law, and their ordeal. It's called Rust and Stardust by T. Greenwood, and it's an imagining of what happened. This book is good, but if you read it, keep in mind it is fiction. Historical fiction notwithstanding. Frank and Sally fleeing in the night may have been, in some way, part of Frank's plan. In Rust and Stardust, Frank continues his ruse of being a G-man. He tells Sally that he is undercover and she will have to act as his daughter, always holding her pending jail time over her as a threat. At some point in that book, Frank shifts his ruse from being agent as captor to agent as protector, meaning that instead of his original claim of having to run her in, he is now her protector. He tells her he has grown fond of her and doesn't want her to go to prison, so they are essentially both in the same boat. If this kind of thing did happen in reality, it would explain why Sally was willing to keep her kidnapping from her family. She was ashamed of them knowing, and she was just waiting to see if the judge could get everything cleared up and she could go home. Mother and sister need never know. But when they fled to Baltimore, if Frank had claimed that he was now shielding her from prison, that they were both fugitives on the run, 
That would explain why she went willingly, why she never, at first at least, tried to contact her family after that lamb from Atlantic City. I suspect the family contact in Atlantic City was also part of the con. If Frank let Sally even encouraged her to write and call home, she wouldn't fear him. His hope, in fact, was that she would like him or even be wooed by him. During their time in Atlantic City, he also bought her candies, clothes, trips to the seaside. This was his trial at seduction. Then they flee, with only each other to depend on. It would be romantic if it weren't such a perverted warping of romance. It's even more sad because it's not even creative. It's textbook. It wasn't just that correspondence that changed with the move to Baltimore. It was in Baltimore that first night, according to Sally, that Frank raped her for the first time. And this continued in earnest afterwards. In March of 1949, Frank claimed to have a new job assignment from the FBI and they would have to move to Dallas. Sally's name changed to Florence Planette and he enrolled her in another Catholic school. For 11 months, they lived in a trailer park, still posing as father and daughter. This was the most freedom Sally had gotten thus far. She had a generous allowance, she went out with friends, and she had a dog she spoiled rotten. Later, some people would say that Sally seemed a bit sad or pensive at times, but no one suspected there was anything really wrong. That is, except Ruth. Now, Ruth and her growing brood lived in the same trailer park. Her eldest girls, aged 5, 6, and 7, fell in love with Florence, a.k.a. Sally, right away, and Florence spent a great deal of time in the company of Ruth and her kids. If Ella could be seen to have provided an unstable environment, Ruth could only be seen as enacting an earthquake. In her lifetime, she would be married 10 times, starting at age 16. And this does not begin to count the number of lovers. Elizabeth Taylor was only married eight, and one of those was to the same man. And I'm not judging, although she would not have been seen as a good woman in the 1930s and 40s. Weinman posits that it was Ruth's need for love that helped her see the similar thing in Frank and Sally's relationship. The problem was she couldn't get Sally, or Florence as she was then called, to open up. In 1950, Ruth's then-husband, George, decided to move them all to San Jose. There was no work in Dallas, and he'd heard of jobs in California. Ruth, good at getting men to do what she wanted, convinced George to talk to Frank about also moving. Between them, Frank was convinced, and he took 10 days to pull the trailer in a convoluted way from Dallas to San Jose. For whatever reason, age, experience, or just finally plain fed up, Towards the end of her stay in Dallas, Sally was growing a pair. She had worked up the courage to talk to a friend at school about her relationship with Frank, and this friend told her she should stop. This obviously is not how we would see this today. Sally was the victim, and, and particularly in light of her age and naivete in the beginning, could not make any kind of rational decision about anything. However, it was how her friend reacted to learning that Sally was having sex with her own supposed father that gives Sally the extra courage to tell Frank that she didn't want to have sex anymore. According to Sally, he stopped asking and stopped forcing her. A few days after Frank pulled the trailer into the trailer park, Ruth got Sally to come over to hers. 
March 21, 1950, Sally, who had never made a long-distance call before, called first her mother, which was disconnected, and then her sister and brother-in-law's business. Quote, her brother-in-law, Al Pinaro, picked up. Will you accept a call from Sally Horner in San Jose, California? The operator asked. You bet I will, Pinaro replied. Hello, Al, this is Sally. May I speak to Susan? He could barely contain his excitement. Where are you at? Give me your exact location. I'm with a lady friend in California. Send the FBI after me, please. Tell mother I'm okay, and, and don't worry, I want to come home. I've been afraid to call before. The connection was poor, and Al had a hard time hearing his sister-in-law. But he heard enough to get the gist. She looked ready to collapse. She kept saying, over and over, what will Frank do when he finds out what I have done? So Ruth spent the next little while keeping Sally calm, hoping the FBI or even the local police would show up soon and arrest Frank. Sally, anxious, thought she should go back to her own trailer and wait for the police. Ruth let her go, hoping it would not be for too long. End quote. And when you've all stopped crying, how could Ruth have let her go back to the trailer? And this is going to be really mean of me, but the tale is going to have to wait for the next episode. And next time I want to talk more about this tragedy from the perspective of those left wondering and worrying in Camden, New Jersey. We will also talk about the trial and what happened to Sally after it was all over. Remember, if you like this podcast, please take a minute to give it a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can reach me with comments and suggestions and constructive criticism at Despecta, or a variation thereof, on most of the social media things. Twitter and Insta for two. If you don't like what you've been listening to for the last half hour, that's on you. I warned you at the beginning, and you can delete, skip, or stop at your own volition. All of this work and content is just me, and don't try to sue me because I'm fat fucking broke. I will leave you all with a syndicate of sound, and I will talk to you next time on It's All Relative. Hey, little girl, you don't have to hide nothing no more. You didn't do nothing that hadn't been done before. Caught, you see. She thought she'd get away with.